chapter 5. Um, we haven't been going through 2 Corinthians or anything like that, so I'll give you some, uh, some context in a minute about our text. Uh, but I thought about um, Mariana and I and our individual natures and personalities um, when it comes to going on vacation. Uh, hadn't been on vacation in a little while, um, but uh, we uh, have been, you know, to my parents in South Carolina. We've done a little bit of traveling. Went to Black Mountain uh, a couple weeks ago. And typically, she's the person who packs the bag. I have never asked her to pack the bag. Uh, she just does it. It's pretty incredible. Um, but I think she does it because that's the way she is. But it's also because she knows what would happen if I packed the bag. Uh, it would not be good. She's the kind of person who's, you know, 8 a.m. the day before we have to leave, she's got the whole thing packed sitting by the door waiting for me to take it out to the car, you know, and I'm like, uh, did you get my underwear, you know, and she's like, yeah, tw- 20 packs of underwear, you know, more than, more than I could ever need, and, and so um, I am just not that way, you know. She knows that if I were to pack my bags, it would be, oh, we got to leave soon. Oh, yeah, like 10 minutes. Yeah, I can get my bag packed real quick, just throw a couple things together, you know, carrying out like a grocery bag full of uh, my clothes. Uh, but she, she's got everything ready. She is, she is queen of the bags. She likes to be prepared and ready to go. And I say that because we have the greatest vacation of our lives ahead of us. And we cannot wait until the last minute to start packing. We need to start today. Second Corinthians is an encouraging letter to a motley crew, a rough church. Uh, in fact, um, Paul you know, loves this church, even though they're so rough. Verses or chapters 4 through 6 really seem to be like his heart just laid bare for the Corinthians, his love for them and trying to encourage them. They were rowdy, divided, and messy, but Paul loved them, and he wanted to spur them on towards growth and towards godliness. Much of the first half of the book is Paul's personal defense as an apostle, which he had to do one too many times, unfortunately. Uh, It didn't make sense for the churches to see Paul saying these things about this rich blessing he has in Christ, and then to see him persecuted the way that he was? How could he undergo all these awful things and rot in a prison cell, and yet say that he has the joy that he has? It didn't make sense, but he explains in these chapters that he suffers the way he does precisely because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite his suffering, he says, don't lose heart in the ministry. That was his own personal goal and ours as well. We should not lose heart. And he explains the life of ministry so poetically in uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 3. The words are on the screen. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live. As punished, 
and not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Really think about that last one, having nothing and yet possessing everything. How on earth can Paul say something like that? From the text today, it's clear that Paul knew his life was temporary and the best was yet to come. And that's exactly how he lived and did ministry. And the point of our text today is because our earthly lives are temporary and heaven is eternal, we ought to embrace the Spirit's preparation, walk by faith, and seek to please Christ with every day before we meet Him. In the midst of a global pandemic, and we are faced with the reality of death, there's never been a better time to remind ourselves what God has to say about the afterlife. And one of the greatest ways to motivate our lives towards godliness now is to reflect on the glory that is to come. It will be here before we know it. Eternity is now. So we need to start packing. To ready, for, to ready us for our eternal home, I've got four points, or at least the text has four points for us today. Our heavenly home, our spiritual preparation, our guiding faith, and our final aim. So first, our heavenly home. Verse 1. For we know that if, our, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Um, so we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 here. Uh, and in chapter 4, Paul says twice what I just said, don't lose heart, don't lose heart. The first time he says it regarding the ministry of the gospel to renounce sin and preach Christ to the perishing, it's hard to do that, but don't lose heart. The second time he says it is a transition now into chapter 5. Even though our outer self is wasting away, he says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Instead, look to the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. He begins to clear things up for us now in chapter 5. What are the seen and the unseen things. The seen is our outer self, which is wasting away. Amen. Paul calls this our tent, yeah. right? And this would have hit home for the Corinthians because while Paul ministered among them, what was he doing? He's making tents. And in fact, in Corinth, many of them would have been tent makers or at least sold tents or used tents for sojourners, kind of like a hotel for a, a quick night stay. Tents are not permanent housing. Everybody knows that, right? Tents are not permanent housing. They're good for a while, but they're not intended to last forever. This tent is our earthly home, and it is wasting away. And one day it will be finally destroyed. And the word destroyed is, is so good. It's something we don't have in English. It has a dual meaning there in the Greek. One is to literally be destroyed. 
abolished, torn down, dissolved, right? This is applicable. This is what will happen to our bodies, right? They will deteriorate eventually in a grave or in cremation. But on the other hand, the other meaning of this word destroyed is used of travelers to halt on a journey, to stop, to unharness your horse and end your traveling. This is also what Paul is describing because one day our earthly life will come to an end and we will unharness all our belongings and journey no longer. The pilgrimage will be over. But if and when that time comes, there is good news for the Christian. We look to things unseen. We have a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We don't fear the destruction of this tent. We groan for the eternal building that God has made for us. And Jesus says this in in John chapter 14. I remember Joey preached on this a couple years ago. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Do you know that the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to go and be with Christ? We long to be with Jesus. Let me explain the scenario that you and I are in. Scene one, God creates man. Man is sinless and living in the presence of God with unaging bodies. Scene two, man rebels against God in sin, puts on mortality, and the curse of sin goes over all the earth. Scene three, Jesus comes to earth, fully God and fully man, to die in our place and is resurrected from the dead, ending the curse of sin for all those who believe in Him. Scene 4. All those who die in Christ go immediately to heavenly realms and stand in the presence of God, covered in the righteousness of Jesus, waiting for His final return and to be united with their new perfected bodies. Scene 5. Jesus returns to give us immortality, to judge the whole earth, to destroy Satan, and to make a new heavens and a new earth, restoring the order of man's right relationship with God. This is history as we know it. This is the world as we know it. Is this the world as you know it? Are you confident, friend, that when you close your eyes in death, You will be flung into eternal realms, into the very presence of God immediately. And into that dwelling place, that building not made with hands, that Christ himself has prepared for us and promised to give us. The alternative is an eternity suffering in hell, paying for our sin against our holy maker. I want to make it clear this morning, as I talk about heaven for the next half hour, that heaven is not for everyone. There are many 
who are in hell now and have been there for thousands and thousands of years. And it is because they do not have Christ as their covering. He is only for those who have repented of their sins and have believed in Him and have seen the cross as the only sufficient atonement and have been converted and changed and born again by His blood. If that is not you, tarry no longer. Come to Christ. Come and receive the wonderful blessings of heaven, not just to get yourself out of hell, but to find joy eternal, to be satisfied with your Maker and to be restored, to know the purpose that you were created for. Come to Christ today. But for those of us already born again, I have to ask you do you groan for heaven? Paul compares mortality and immortality to nakedness and clothing. Many see death as being found naked. Anybody want to be found naked? Not me, right? A terrible thing. What shame, you know? And, and we, we have that same feeling about death. We don't want to, we don't want to die. But, but Paul says dying is not being found naked. For the Christian... The destruction of our bodies is actually putting on more clothes, right? Just because our body goes, our spirit goes with Christ, you know? Our souls are redeemed and saved. When our tents are destroyed, we are putting more clothing on. And I think the better clothing that Paul is referring to here is the final resurrection. When the dead in Christ shall rise, literally, Bodies will get up from graves and be reunited with their souls. And we will have restored, perfect, sinless bodies. This is what Paul is longing for. He says that life will swallow up our mortality. And we are clothed with newness of life once and for all. So again, do you groan for heaven? Do you long for the things of God? The word groan is so appropriate, it's an expression of grief, anger, or desire. It's used of childbirth, a pressure that is being exerted forward to something that is coming. And I think this groaning is described perfectly in Jesus' own analogy in John chapter 16. He says on the screen, Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And maybe if you're honest, you don't live your life with this type of groaning, at least not all the time. You don't long for heaven or even think about heaven most days. Thanks be to God. He gave us the Holy Spirit to ready our hearts for eternity. Number two, our spiritual preparation. Look at verse five. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Many people have said to Mariana and I, I'm sorry for all the personal, quote, personal references, Mariana, today, uh, but a lot of people have said, uh, if you wait till you're ready to have kids, 
you'll never have kids. Right? You ever heard that one? I'm not sure how I feel about that phrase still, even as we're having a child now. I don't know if it's totally true or not. I understand what they mean, that you can never fully prepare yourself for all of the implications of what it means to be a parent, right? We can all agree to that. You're, you, you can never fully, you know, know what that means and prepare yourself in that way. But I do think that if you get your life together so that you can support a kid, you read some good books, you change a few of your kid's friend's diapers, and you talk to your family doctor, you can prepare yourself to have a family, can't you? You can prepare yourself. And we're doing all that stuff right now. So we're trying to get prepared. Because we would be fools not to, right? The question is, how do we prepare ourselves for heaven? The ama- this, this amazing verse here, verse 5, teaches us that God himself prepares each child by the Holy Spirit for heaven. That's wonderful, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is our primary source of preparation for eternity. When we are saved, God gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a guarantee of salvation that we will be spared from the wrath to come. The Holy Spirit is Himself God, the third person of the Trinity, who dwells in every heart of every believer, sanctifying us, convicting us of sin, guiding us towards holiness, and ultimately towards heaven. So when a pandemic comes our way, and talks of death and disease and sickness... And bodily destruction rule the news outlets and our daily conversations. What does the Spirit do? Well, He reminds us that death is not nakedness. But it is to be fully clothed in Jesus. He reminds us that death has been swallowed up in life. He reminds us that even if our dearest loved ones, our spouses, our children, our friends, and our family get COVID-19 and they die in Christ, they go to a wonderful place that God has prepared for them. And he reminds us that if we ourselves get the virus and die, we will be with Christ where our allegiance lies And where our pleasures lie forevermore. And what if we have a presidential election? And we have racial wars. And we're living in a divided nation that shows increasing corruption and immorality. What does the Spirit say? He reminds us that all the earth's politicians are the tiniest of footnotes in God's grand history of redemption. He reminds us that in a little while, a little while... Our sorrow will be turned to joy and Christ will return and He will be our King on the earth. He reminds us that in heaven, none of this will matter. And we will have worried in vain. And He also reminds us that God will hold all men accountable for their deeds done in the earthly body. And vengeance will be His to enforce. The Holy Spirit also guides us towards a local church, doesn't He? Towards a group of believers who are also pilgriming towards heaven. Right? And we sing songs together. We sing, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight 
And the cloud shall be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. It is well with our souls. We sing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus and we'll sing and we'll shout the victory. And I love that verse, just one glimpse of him in glory. Will all the toils of life repay? We sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth shall grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We sing, there's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar, for the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. The church historically used to sing a lot more songs like this. I I learned this week that if you grab an old 19th century hymnal, you'll find like 250 doctrinally rich hymns about heaven and Christ's return. If you find a modern hymnal and you look for some songs about heaven today, you might find a dozen. We don't sing about heaven as much as we used to. but The Holy Spirit has brought us together to set our minds on the things above together. You know, and I think back then in the 1700s when statistically 50% of your kids weren't going to make it to age 10, you were thinking about heaven a lot. And you were comforting one another with the thoughts of heaven a lot. And we need to do that today. God has brought you to this church to make you long and groan for heaven more. God has brought you to this church to help others groan and long for heaven more. And let me say kind of a hard word here. What is the goal of discussing end times theology? What is the goal of discussing end times theology? It's important. Something we we need to do. We need to talk about that, right? But God has not revealed the things to come so that we would argue with one another. And boast in our rightness and others being wrong. God has revealed heaven for us so that we would worship Him. If your end times discussion don't end in worship, you're doing it wrong. We are here to prepare one another for death and for heaven and for the final resurrection. So talk about heaven. Talk about Jesus' second coming. Read the book of Revelation. But do so with worship and with grace with one another. Every piece of sanctification that the Lord works in your life is to prepare you for heaven. Every prayer, every scripture, every trial, every blessing. And it's in these times when we must hear the Spirit saying to us, look to the things unseen. So we know we're supposed to long for heaven. We're supposed to look for the things unseen, right? But what are we to do now? Anybody here dead yet? No, right? We're still alive. We're still here. So how does the future reality of heaven impact our life today? We have faith. Our faith. Our faith. Look at verse 6. So while we are always of good courage, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Here is perhaps one of the most quoted Bible verses in all 66 books. 
We walk by faith, not by sight. Many songs have been written, many sermons have been preached. But what is Paul actually teaching here? He starts off by saying, we are of good courage. Now your Bible might say, we are confident, confident of these things. This is hinging off what he just wrote. The Spirit is our guarantee of future glory. Therefore, we have confidence and are of good cheer because God keeps His promises. If we know that we have an absolute, logical, reasonable knowledge that God has given us the Holy Spirit and will return for us, and that to be in this body is to be away from the Lord or absent from the Lord, We can have certainty that God will do what He says He will do. In other words, God, if God were here, while we are in these mortal tents, we would be walking by sight, right? Now, there is a sense in which God is here, right? He's chosen to dwell in His church. We've talked about that recently. He is everywhere. But there is not this personal, physical presence as we long to have with Him like it was in the garden, and like it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So as long as we are in these fallen bodies, God will not be here. So we are forced, while we are in these these tents, to walk by faith. Now, it's important for us to keep the context in mind so we can understand what faith is. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not a random hoping that something will come true. Faith is not the absence of reason and logic. Faith is knowing with great certainty that something will come to be. It's literally the same Greek word for truth and belief, right? Things that aren't wishy-washy. It's not walking off of a mountaintop blindly, knowing that God, but it is knowing that God will do what He says He will do with our eyes wide open. When Jesus said, your faith has made you well, what did he mean? It was because they believed in him. They truly trusted him. They knew that he would do what he said he would do, right? And when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. This This is the same thing here. As, as belief, receiving is the same concept of faith. Believing, knowing, accepting truth for what truth is. And our faith does not only teach us that God is absent from our mortal bodies, but also that when we leave our mortal bodies, we will be at home with the Lord. We've all heard it quoted in the KJV a hundred times, haven't we? To be absent from the body, to be present from the Lord. Ichabod Spencer, a pastor from the 1800s, uh, was once comforting a church member uh, as she was going to die. He got a call, and so he went to her house late at night. It was her final moments, and the whole family was there gathered around her bed, and she was breathing heavy, and he knelt by her bed, and he said, Are you ready to die? First words, Are you ready to die? Here's what she said. Pastor, I have decided to take God at His word. I'm ready to die. 
no truer definition of faith has ever been given. She said, you've told me in all your sermons to believe that God will do what He says He will do. Why would I not do that now? I've decided to take God at His word. Dear church members, do you really know what happens when we die? We claim to be the ones who know that. Do you know what happens when we die? Do you know where Wilma Morrow is? Do you know where Brenda Ledford is? Do you know where Gary Collins is? Do you know where you will be when you close your eyes for the last time? We will be walking by sight. We will be in heavenly realms, accepted by the blood of Christ alone. We will not have bodies, but will be souls living in the all-satisfying presence of God. No more sin, no more sorrows, no more pain. And with all the saints who have died in Christ, from John the Baptist to St. Augustine to R.C. Sproul, we will sing with them the choruses of God's great name and His majesty and His worthiness to all generations. And we will tell stories of life and how God redeemed us. We will see our friends and our family again who have died in Christ. We won't understand everything, but we will no longer be enslaved by doubt and fears that once tortured us. And we will wait together for Christ to finally return on the day of judgment and begin His millennial reign. The trump shall resound. We will go with Him to the earth. Our bodies will meet us in the skies. We will be restored. We will be made like Christ as He is. And on that bittersweet day of justice, wrath, glory, and mercy, and all that history has been waiting for, it will finally come. God will make all things new, including the earth itself, and we will live there on the earth with sinless bodies where the prince of the power of the air no longer rules this place but Christ himself is the king do you know what happens when we die oh why do we care so much about the things of earth this is not wishful thinking this is faith be of good courage be confident be of good cheer Main Street take God at his word He will do what He says He will do. But until He does what He says He will do, we're the church. We have a mission to accomplish. We are fueled by the thoughts of heaven to preach Christ to all men because one day all men must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is our final aim, verse 9. Our final aim. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When Paul teaches on heaven, it really is kind of a two-sided coin. On the one side, we, we long to go to heaven. We groan, right, to go and be where Christ is. We don't belong here. We're made for another world. On the other side of the coin... Here we are, we're on earth, we're not in heaven, right? And we're not leaving until the Lord says it's time for us to go. So how should we then live? Some have decided to live a peaceful, quiet life, looking at this almost like a prison sentence, just waiting till our day of freedom and Christ lets us go home. Others have decided to live this life to the fullest, embracing all the wonderful things about 
this place, but forgetting that the best is yet to come. Regardless of which way you are tempted to lean, the Bible has some helpful teaching for us. Whether we are at home or whether we are away, we make it our aim to do what? To please Him, the Lord. What shall we do with our time on earth? We shall please the Lord. What shall we do with our time in heaven? We shall please the Lord. Paul saw each day as an opportunity to please and bring delight to his Father. And this is the same for us. And in fact, if there's an opportunity for us to please God with each day of our life, that must also mean that there is the fearful possibility of displeasing the Lord as well. When we talk about heaven, we tend to focus on the happy parts. And we should focus on the happy parts, right? But there is also the reality that each of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. One day, Christ will personally look at you in the eyes and judge your soul. Every good and evil thing ever done in the body. Now this is not about salvation. As for salvation, you know, from wrath and hell and eternal judgment, the blood of Jesus is enough. The blood of Jesus will always be enough. Don't misinterpret this, right? The blood of Christ. Paul has spent numerous chapters writing on the blood of Christ being enough in the ministry of reconciliation. Okay? But that doesn't mean the Lord will not look at our lives at all. He will personally review every deed of every man. Every prayer we ever, ever prayed. Every time we ever told someone about Jesus. Every time we simply rejoiced and thanked God for the day. Every thought we've ever had as a teenager, every word we've ever spoken to another human being, every time we ever said no and every time we ever said yes, every church service we missed, every church service we came to with selfish thoughts, criticism on our hearts, everything we've ever searched for on the internet. Everything we've ever sent in a text message. Every single thing we have ever done. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, we have trouble understanding what that means. There it is. There it is. Now again, this is not referring to salvation. But here's what it is referring to. This, is, this establishes two things for us. We know when we will meet Christ, we'll be judged. Christ will personally greet us. He will look at every evil thing and clean the dirt off of us and give us a righteous robe to wear, right? He will make us as He is, removing the evil, sinful deeds we once pursued, give us a crown of approval, making us worthy to enter His rest. His eyes will behold all the evil. He will clean us off. It also means that every good thing Christ finds in us will imply some kind of reward. Heaven is going to be happy all on its own. But the scriptures do make it clear that there is some kind of recognition and reward in heaven for every good deed done in the body. We don't know a lot about this, but we, don't, we, we do know that we don't do good works for trying to get some kind of reward. We do good works because the Holy Spirit has taught us to please Christ. We are now His workmanship. 
right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what gives us joy now. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, you know, I love it in, in Romans 3 when Paul is showing the guilt of all humanity and how we are without excuse. He ends that great passage saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And when there is no fear of God before our eyes, our throats are open graves. We are full of curses and bitterness. We are swift to shed blood. We do not know the way of peace. The fear of God is the way to peace. And it is the way to live a life pleasing to God. How do we please the Lord? We recognize His sovereign authority. We revere His majesty. And then we step back and we adore Him. We worship Him. How do we displease the Lord? We live lives in which we are the sovereign authority, which we are our own majesty, and we do what pleases us. So dear church, with the words of Paul, we say together, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let us please the Lord with every day that we come closer to His throne. And when our time comes that God has appointed for us to die, we will not ponder over the political decisions that were made in our nation. We will not ponder over the implications of COVID-19. We will sing with David in Psalm 116, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And our death will spur on a multitude of heavenly beings singing, rejoicing that another saint has made it home. Are you ready to go home? Do you have your bags packed? Are you walking by the Spirit? Are you being prepared day by day, groaning to be where Christ is? May He prepare us for those heavenly things. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com. Or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.